Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had a while ago with James Clear, author of Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. I thought that this would be an appropriate topic to revisit, especially if you're currently having trouble changing your habits. It would be good news to you to hear that the problem isn't you, The problem is your system and that any of those bad habits that you have that are repeating themselves over and over, it's not because you don't want to change, but because you've got the wrong system for change in place. In this conversation with James, we talk about what a habit really is and how you can create true systems of change towards making progress. Now might be the perfect time to rethink where you're at, what you're doing with your habits and where you're wanting to go. And this is a perfect time to revisit Atomic Habits with James Clear. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, James Clear. James, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. So your book's taking off Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break old ones. I love that you called it Atomic Habits, and you even go into specifically the word atomic and specifically the word habit. So I want to start there and unpack what you mean by atomic. Sure. So I chose the phrase atomic habits for three reasons. Um, the first meaning of the word atomic is tiny or small. And that is like a key piece of my philosophy that habits should be small, just how atoms are small, like really, really small and tiny and easy to do. Uh, the second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. And I think that's kind of a central point that's often overlooked and it. It plays a pretty key role in my book, this idea that you're looking to make all these little easy 1% changes, but you're also looking to layer them on top of each other, like units in a larger system. And then the third and final meaning of the word atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And so I think if you combine all three of those meanings, you sort of understand the narrative arc of the book, which is... If you make these changes that are small and easy to do and you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system, then you can end up with really powerful or remarkable results in the long run. So that's the origin of the phrase atomic habits. I love it. I love the especially the second one, because that's the one that's overlooked where basically at the atomic level, things get pulled together and then you go up a level and then you go up a level and you, Mm. you know, you get cells to tissue, I guess, to organs, to body parts, to a human. And that's just, you know, on the, uh, you know, physical level of a person, let alone all the other things. We're all made up of things. And that's the cool thing is, and we'll get into this later, like we are kind of made up by our habits. So Mm -hmm. yeah, you see that kind of hierarchy all over in the world. You know, you have like individuals to groups to cities to countries to nations you know and so on you've got uh, and then the whole world you've got uh, seeds to trees to forests you have atoms to molecules to compounds i mean there's all that kind of like hierarchy is 
all, I, almost universal um, in in certain ways. And so applying that to your daily life, I think makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, your your life is really the sum of your habits. Your daily routine is just the sum of those small patterns and behaviors that uh, kind of accumulate. And then you turn around, you know, two or five or 10 years later and you're like, oh, you know, look at these results that I do or don't have. Um, but it's often the result of uh, those daily choices. And we're going to get into that a bit more when we talk about how making habit changes is easy, which is not something a lot of people are used to hearing. But before we get that far in, I want to say like, okay, so the other word in the title, habits, let's define what that word means. Because I think, again, some people are hearing you say, well, habits, changing habits is easy. And they're like, well, hold up. I've beat my head against the wall trying to change habits for a long time. Are you using the same meaning of the word that I am? Yeah, that's actually a good question because we use the phrase habit in a lot of different ways. Um, so just quickly, the definition that I think we can operate around is a habit is a a routine or behavior practiced regularly, uh, in many cases performed enough times to be more or less automatic that you can do it pretty much without thinking. Now, of course, we use the phrase habit to mean more than just that. Like you, you might say something like, uh, I want to make a habit out of going to the gym or I want to get into the habit of writing. And I know what you mean when you say that, right? But that's kind of more like a routine um, mm-hmm. in the sense that you're not going to sit down and like write for an hour each day. And that's your habit of writing, but do it totally on autopilot. You know, I mean, writing almost by definition is like very effortful and you have to concentrate. So it's never going to become this automatic habitual pattern that you do without thinking at all. But I think that we can use habits to initiate that more effortful work. And this is something I cover more, uh, maybe about halfway to three fourths of the way through the book. This idea of using habits as like an entrance ramp to bigger behaviors, um, kind of using them to master a decisive moment or the initial start of the action and then letting that flow naturally into a larger, more complicated routine. But the short answer to your question is uh, a practice or routine performed regularly, usually one that's consistent or frequent enough to, to be done more or less automatically. It's almost like it's muscle memory. You've you've trained yourself to the point where when in a given situation, and I've heard you put it this way, where presented with a problem, you already know the solution. So the solution mm. is secondhand. Or not I secondhand, actually really like that yeah. way of describing what a habit is and what role it plays because I think it clarifies why the brain builds habits and why they're important. As you go through life, you face a variety of problems. And some of those problems are are large, but some of them are small. Like, you know, you put your shoe on and your shoe is untied. And in a sense, that's a problem that your brain needs to solve. And you're doing this all day long. You're coming across different situations that require a solution. Now, the first time that you tie your shoe, it requires a lot of thought and energy. You don't know exactly how to do it. You need to think carefully about the loops and how how to tie it and so on. Is it secure? But after you tie your shoe 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 times, you turn around and you can do it without even thinking, right? Like you you can think about your to-do list for the morning while you're tying your shoes or hold a conversation with your spouse or, you know, whatever. And that is really the purpose of building habits is that it allows the, it enables the brain to automate a solution to a recurring problem, one that you face repeatedly and in a similar context. And whenever that context arises, whenever that problem comes up, it's like your brain has this mental shortcut where it can just like pull it out and use it and solve that problem. And you can keep your conscious attention focused on something else. And that's really the the role that habits play is they allow us to do more in the same amount of time. They allow us to um, free up our attention and cognitive energy to focus on other problems in life because we've automated the solution to the ones that happen again and again. And sometimes that's tying your shoe. Sometimes it's unplugging the toaster after each use. Sometimes it's weird personality quirks. Like, you know, you cover your mouth every time when you laugh or things like that. You apologize each time before you ask a question. Oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, and like, we don't even think about a lot of those things. We're running them all day long. Being a child of the 80s, The Karate Kid is a movie that I'm fully aware of, and the whole Miyagi wax on, wax off Mm. thing comes to mind, you know, where, you know, he's like, you haven't been teaching me karate. Suddenly, because of the wax on, wax off, is able to block the attacks, and it's kind of like that. It's like, wait, I didn't even realize I had already formed over behavior, repeated over and over, the solution to this someone's attacking me problem. 
Yeah, that's actually an interesting example too, because the, your brain is doing that all day long. Like you, you have this, in a sense, a habit is like a memory of the steps that you've used in the past to solve a problem. So in this karate kid example, it's a memory of like waxing on and waxing off on the car. And then as you go through life, you know, no instant, no moment in life is exactly the same as uh, previous moments, but your brain is trying to map that memory onto your current situation and figure out like, when do I apply this? And um, the, one of the key pieces of that is recognizing when the context is appropriate. You know, so for example, um, you might buy a new pair of shoes and put them on and your brain knows what to do to tie the shoe, even though it doesn't look exactly like uh, the shoe that you learned to tie your shoes on. And uh, something similar is kind of going on here when Daniel is like applying this wax on wax off uh, movement pattern to actual karate in the ring. So you aren't the first person to come up with the whole like uh what's it called the cue the routine the sure, the habit reward loop. yeah the the stimulus response reward first was like bf skinner back in the day and then obviously what was it almost gosh almost a well little almost to a decade now uh when Charles Duhigg came out with his power of habit book which kind of reframed those words to cue routine and reward but you kind of expand on that in a good way because it's not as simple as just cue routine reward. And I use those because people may be familiar with that. In fact, Charles was actually on the show years ago talking briefly about that whole thing. But I like that you've expanded this because it, it leaves room for a lot more of the humanness to habits, I guess, and our behavior, human behavior aspect to it. Thank you. Yeah. Skinner is the one who kind of like led the way with this stimulus response reward methodology. Um, although even in, in chapter three of Atomic Habits, I talk about some research done by uh, Edward Thorndike, which was maybe 20 or 30 years before Skinner. And even that was like very similar. But the point being that for 100 years or so, that's been one of the prevailing models, this this cue routine reward idea that you have some kind of cue that prompts your behavior uh, then you have the routine or the behavior itself, and then you get some kind of benefit from it. You have some kind of reward or outcome. That's the reason for doing it or reinforces you doing it the next time. And that model is, is pretty effective at understanding a lot of behavior. Uh, but then there was sort of this second wave. Uh, so that the first model is this behavioral psychology wave. And then there was the second wave of cognitive psychology. And psychologists started to realize that man, we have like moods and emotions and beliefs and feelings and those things impact behavior as well. It's not just about these uh, cues and, you know, responding more or less like on autopilot. And I, um, I think Duhigg wrote a good book. I actually have more respect for it now after having finishing my, finished mine. Well, I have respect for anybody who's finished a book at this point, <laughs> but, uh, but I also think he did a, a nice job, but I had a couple questions when I looked at that model, whether it was Skinner's or his or whoever, and like one of the questions was, well, how come you can respond? The same person can respond to the same cue in different ways. Like imagine you walk into your kitchen in the morning and you see a loaf of bread. So physical cue, you see the bread. Maybe you, the routine is you make toast. So cue, see the bread, routine, make toast, reward, you get to eat it, tastes good, so on. But then you can just as easily imagine like 10 minutes later, you've finished, um, eating breakfast and then you walk back into the kitchen and you see a loaf of bread and now you don't make the toast. That model doesn't explain that well because it's like, well, the cue is the same. Why isn't the routine there? It would right. like, you know, you would think that according to this model, as soon as the cue happens, the routine falls naturally. So I felt like there was something missing there. And then I had a second question, which is, well, how come different people respond to cues, the same cue in different ways? Like you could have one person walk in to a room and see a pack of cigarettes on the table and they have this craving, this urge to smoke. And then another person who isn't a smoker walks in and the pack of cigarettes doesn't do anything. Same cue, but totally different response. And so it was clear to me that there was something going on in the interpretation of the cue uh, in like what it means that was really significant for describing how behavior works. And these weren't at least in my eyes, these weren't like small questions. These were like kind of central things. Like yeah. why do different people have different habits or why do I do a habit in one situation, but not in another? And if we can't, if we don't have good answers to those questions, I feel like we like, we don't understand habits that well. And so the model that I use is four stages instead of three. 
and there's a cue. And then the second stage is what I call craving, but it's really about, I use that phrase, not in like the craving for a donut or something, but in a more broad sense, like there is an interpretation of that cue that determines whether or not you want to take action. Um, and that it's really that prediction in the second stage that motivates you to act or not. And then you have the response, which is the actual behavior you take. And then you also have the reward at the end. And the adding the second stage uh, does a couple really meaningful things. Uh, the first is it helps explain and answer those questions that I just raised. Like, why do you eat the loaf of bread the first time, but not the second? Well, the answer is you don't crave it anymore. Your state has changed. So the first time you see the cue and your current state is I'm hungry. I haven't eaten all night. So let me make some toast. And the second stage or in the second time around, you see the uh, same cue, but your state is different. You're I'm full. I just ate breakfast. So you're not motivated to take the reaction or the response. And it also explains the difference between the two smokers. Um, one person interprets cigarettes as meaning, oh, I need to smoke those. You know, maybe they mean maybe it means I'll get a hit of nicotine. Maybe it means I'll calm my nerves and reduce stress. Maybe it means I'll get to smoke with my friends outside. But they interpret that cue in a positive way. For another person who's never smoked before, it's not even really a cue. It's just kind of like a neutral item or icon in the environment. So first, it helps explain that, like why why we do those things differently. And then secondly, it actually provides a more precise and clear definition of what is a reward. And in many cases, understanding how to change your habits requires you to understand why they're rewarding. Mm -hmm. But what is it that makes something rewarding? In many cases, it's rewarding because it relieves the craving that comes before the action. So, you know, in, for example, to take the smoking one, you don't actually like want to smoke a cigarette. What you want is to feel differently. Or when you eat like a package of Doritos, you don't want to eat the Doritos. What you want is to feel differently. And so it's about resolving that craving, uh, that desire for a change in state that's in the second stage with the outcome that comes in the fourth stage. So uh, I think that those are all very meaningful, nuanced, more precise ways of looking at a habit. And that's why I felt it was necessary to add that fourth stage. Yeah, I honestly think this was the missing piece for me in a lot of ways because it helps enter in to this whole other dimension when it comes to habits of self-awareness. It's the why is the craving or the need that I'm trying to fill uh, then rewarding and then questioning, well, is that really the reward that I'm wanting or is actually, uh, let's put it this way, uh, is it a good habit, quote, or a bad habit that I'm using to get that reward based on the craving? Like, you know, it's this whole other like, whoa, my mind is blown. I didn't know I was doing it for this. I thought I was just doing it for this other reason. You, you know, it just it starts to get kind of crazy <laughs> with the self-awareness yeah, yeah. there. I'm glad to hear that you found it useful. I think it also clarifies a lot about like bad habits, like why people wonder, like, why do I do a bad habit? If I yeah. know it doesn't benefit me, why would I do that? And if you just look at, if you were to look at these four stages, kind of like on a timeline, like first you see the cue, then you have a craving, then you take the response, then there's the reward. You realize that even though the outcome might be negative in your mind, like, why would I do this thing that doesn't benefit me? That actually happens after the action, the craving happens before it. And so if you if the craving arises, you'll be motivated to act. And by the time the action's done, it's not even about the reward anymore or the consequence. Um, and this is what you see when people develop addictions is the, one of the definitions of an addiction is a behavior that continues to be repeated despite negative consequences. So people can know that it doesn't benefit them anymore, but they the craving still arises and thus they're still motivated to act. I just felt like previous models didn't explain that process as clearly and uh, made it maybe a little more confusing about like why someone would do a bad habit. And the answer is the craving is still there, even if the reward is not. Well, and you, even in the book, still use the terms good habit and bad habit, although those kind of are thrown out the window in a sense, because it's not necessarily that something's good or bad. It's whether it's the right reward for the right reason or the right fulfilling the right need you know what i mean like it's it, it's going about getting to to actually the ultimate like right reward and pairing that with the right behavior to get to that or i should say not right reward but best reward maybe yeah i am yeah. um, 
I mentioned this a little bit briefly in the book, this idea that like we use the term good and bad habits, but in a sense, it's kind of inaccurate or incomplete because all habits, even the bad ones serve you in some way. That's why we do them. They provide again, taking it back to that problem and solution idea. They provide a solution to the problem you're facing. So, you know, in many cases you can map like pretty much any behavior produces multiple outcomes across time. So in the case of bad habits, it's often true that your the immediate outcome is favorable. For example, like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is enjoyable. It's sweet, sugary, tasty. But the ultimate outcome, if you repeat that habit for a week or a month or a year, is unfavorable, unhealthy, and unproductive. With good habits, it's often the reverse, where like the immediate outcome is unfavorable. You know, the immediate outcome of like going to the gym is you sweat and it requires energy and effort and there's a trade-off and you can't watch Netflix during that hour and whatever. And the ultimate outcome, if you repeat that habit for a week or a month or a year, is that you're fit and in shape. And a lot of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is about figuring out ways to take those long-term consequences of your bad habits and pull them into the present moment. So you feel a little bit of the pain right now. So it's not just serving you in the moment. It's also hurting you and finding ways to pull the long-term rewards, the delayed gratification of your good habits into the present moment so that it's not just sacrifice up front. It's also serving you in some way, but your larger point that, we use the words good and bad, but maybe we should just think about habits as being effective or ineffective in the sense that they like either effectively solve your problem or they don't. And what you're really looking for is not uh, a good or a bad habit. You're looking for the optimal one for solving that problem. And uh, I still think the terms good and bad can mm-hmm. be useful because we all kind of know what we we're talking about when we say that. Uh, I think that distinction I just made between immediate outcome and ultimate outcome that's probably the clearest way to think about it. Your good habits have good ultimate outcomes and your bad habits have bad ultimate outcomes. But understanding that all habits play a role and serve you in some way in the moment is instructive and useful for understanding why it is that your brain would do something that doesn't seem to be a good habit. And for a lot of people out there, that's going to work. And for some other people, because I like to kind of present the spectrum here, they're going to hear it and say, oh, I think I can latch on to the, hey, this this quote bad habit is a better way to frame it for me would be to say that's not the correct solution to fulfill that best outcome. So I'm going to look for a better solution and substitute it with a good habit or something along those lines. Yeah. Just think about like, um, say you come home from work each day and you're stressed and exhausted. So in a sense, that's like a problem that your brain has to solve. And so we start again, habits are solutions to recurring problems. So if you come home each day and you feel stressed and exhausted, maybe one person would solve that problem by playing video games for an hour. And that's how they feel relaxed and so on. Another person might smoke a cigarette for 10 minutes. A third person might go for a run. And you can start to see that there are many different habits that could resolve that same craving, that could solve that same problem. This is, I think, the larger point you're trying to get at right now, which is your original habit is not necessarily the optimal one. It's not necessarily the optimal solution to the problem that you face. And so all of us, as we go through life, are going to inherit or learn certain patterns or routines that are maybe suboptimal. But at some point you turn around and you say, oh, you know, like maybe the original way I learned that is not the the best way. And so you start looking for a different habit that you can plug in and resolve the same problem or get a similar solution. That I think is is great because then you start to take control and responsibility for the habits that you have rather than just feeling like they're happening to you. And that then there is why the whole extra dimension helps, because it's not just about, oh, I got home and I'm tired. Let me do something to alleviate my fatigue. It's about, wait, what is ultimately, and, and let's get into this a little bit in a minute. Who am I? What's my identity? Who, what kind of person am I that then starts to help me decide what are the best choices for me to create habits about to fulfill that need of alleviating my fatigue or resting? Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search. 
Just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than three 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is a phrase that I like to use when talking about like, where do we start with habits? How do we, how do we know where to focus our attention? And that is uh, the phrase identity-based habits. And so usually when people go about the process of trying to change something or achieve something new, they start with what I would call like an outcome-based habit. Uh, And this is a very like goal-oriented approach, you know, like I want to lose 30 pounds in the next six months, or I want to double my income, or I want to meditate for 15 minutes a day or something like that. It's very outcome-driven. And uh, there's nothing wrong with getting results and outcomes. But a lot of the time what happens is people come up with a plan for the outcome they or they they think about the outcome they want then they come up with a plan for how to achieve that but they never think about like the beliefs that are underlying all of their behavior that led to their past behavior they never think about their identity or self image and i think that that's actually a core driver of a lot of our behavior and if you don't shift that in a productive way it ends up becoming really hard uh, to stick to a program in the long run or just to uh, build those habits over the time. The good news is you can actually change and upgrade and expand your identity. And I think your habits are one of the best methods that we have for doing that. So for example, um, your habits are in a sense, kind of how like you embody a particular identity, you know, like every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized or, Each time that you sit down and write for 10 minutes, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. Or whenever you go to the gym, you embody the identity of a fit person. And it's kind of like every action you take is a vote for the kind of person that you believe that you are. And it's not that habits are the only thing that influence your identity. Like all experiences in life matter. But because habits are repeated day in and day out, they start to cast the majority of the votes. They like accumulate the bulk of the evidence. And as that little mountain of of votes builds up, now you have something to like root your belief in. So a reason to that like proves your identity to you. You know, it's like you turn around at the end of the month and wow, I've meditated 24 times this month. Like that's, you know, I got this little pile of 24 votes for I am a meditator. And at some point, it's not the first time or the fifth time or maybe even the 10th or 100th time that you do it. But at some point, you kind of cross over this invisible threshold and you just believe it about yourself. You're like, oh, I'm a meditator. And I think that that is actually that identity change is actually true behavior change because there's like it's one thing to say, like, I want this. It's something very different to say, I am this like I am a meditator or Uh, One of the lines I use in the book is the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. You know, like once you say, I am a meditator, I am a writer, I am a runner. That's a very different level um, of of self-image. And in a sense, once you've changed your identity, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore because you're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe yourself to be. And so it's not, you don't have to you know, if someone believes I'm a writer, then they're not trying to motivate themselves to write each day or convince themselves to sit down. That's just what they do because that's who they are. Same thing, you know, if you think like I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts where, well, you know, I mean, that that identity is enough to get you to go to the gym. Um, and so ultimately, I think what we're all trying to get to is identity change. This is perhaps the the real or deeper true reason that habits matter so much you know we often talk about habits as a method for getting external results like habits can help you be more productive or lose weight or make more money and like all those things are true 
And that's great. But the thing that habits really do deeply do is they reshape your sense of identity, your sense of self. They accumulate these votes that say, Hey, this is the kind of person I am now. And I think that that's the the real reason that habits are so crucial. And um, one of the reasons why I wrote the book and felt like it was important to share the message. So the votes uh, that to me sounds like the atoms at the, you know, as we were talking about the beginning of this conversation from the title of the book, each vote is another atom making up a new cell of that identity that you are that eventually becoming or in process of becoming in, in, in a sense, it's almost then by saying, you know, I am a writer or I am a person who does this, or I am a, I'm a meditator. Like you said, as that example, it's not just a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, where you say I am that thing and then you start to become that thing. But yet at the same time, it kind of is right. It is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I want to make one distinction that I think is important, which is sometimes uh, you'll hear people say things like fake it till you make it or something like that. Mm. And what I'm describing here is a little bit different than that. And I think the, the difference is a meaningful one. So with fake it till you make it, you're asking yourself to believe something without having evidence for it. And that can work for a short period of time. You might be able to like motivate yourself to do something you don't feel like you normally do. But over uh, even maybe just a few days, um, but certainly over a longer period of time, that doesn't work well because we have you have this belief that you're trying to hold on to without having evidence for it. And the word for a belief that doesn't have evidence is delusion. And at some point, like your brain feels this internal conflict where you're saying you're like, I keep saying I'm one thing, but I, my actions aren't matching up. And rather than faking it till you make it, my recommendation is to build small habits uh, that cast a vote for your desired identity so that you let the behavior lead the way rather than the belief. And by letting the behavior lead the way, you're casting a vote. And by doing it, even if you do it just once, you already have evidence that you're that kind of person. And uh, so I think the difference here is whether there is evidence behind the belief or not. And the way to get it to stick, the way to get it to last is to have evidence accumulate over time. In the long run, it's really hard to hold on to a belief if you don't have any evidence for it. Well, and one of the easiest ways to make that vote or to show up and and even, again, master the art of showing up, as you put it, is this two-minute rule where you scale stuff down to two minutes and that – or in other words, that 1% showing up every single day, that compounding interest. I really like the two-minute rule is a good place to start for building better habits. And the the idea is pretty simple. You just take whatever habit you're trying to build, like – read 30 books a year uh, and you scale it down to just the first two minutes. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And people have heard things kind of like this before, you know, you, you, they've heard like take baby steps or take small steps or start small. But even when you know that you should start small, it's still really easy to start too big. And so someone might say like, all right, I know I want to get in the habit of running, but I should start small. So I'm only going to run for 15 minutes. But even that's like way bigger than what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about an action that can be scaled down and completed in just the first two minutes. So like put on your running shoes and step out the front door. And if you do anything else, if you go for a run at all, it's just a bonus. Now, sometimes people resist that because it sounds like kind of like this mental trick. It's like, well, I, you know, I know the real thing isn't for me to just put my running shoes on. I know the real habit is for me to go for a run. Like that's putting my running shoes on. Isn't going to get me in shape. But what people often fail to realize is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. If you don't master the art of showing up, then there's nothing to optimize. There's nothing to improve from there. So one of my favorite examples of this, I had a reader who he ended up losing over 100 pounds, and one of the first things that he did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would drive to the gym, get out of the car, do like half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds silly to most people. It's the complete opposite of what you're going to be doing if you're trying to get in shape. But what you realize is he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person who went to the gym every day. And once he did that for like five or six weeks, he turned around and he was like, man, I'm coming here all the time. Kind of feel like staying a little bit longer. And that I think is the, you only have that option if you make it as easy as possible on yourself in the beginning. 
And they're also like, with any habit, there are all these logistical details, you know, like, okay, you want to go to the gym each day. Well, what gym will you go to? What route will you take? Are you going to go before work or after work? Will you go by yourself or will you join a friend there? Are you, um, do you have to bring your own water bottle or is there a water fountain at the gym? And all that stuff sounds like little details, but in the beginning, if you're like trying hard and trying to build a habit and it's difficult and you pick a habit that's like really big and complicated, little things like, oh, this gym doesn't have a water fountain and I always forget to bring my water bottle. That's enough to get people to quit early on. And so if you make it really easy, two minutes or less, master the artist showing up, get the habit established, then you can be there each day and actually have the chance to improve and upgrade from there. So you're now touching on something that was kind of my follow-up question, which is something that's in the world of productivity very much uh, a problem, which is some people are super busy and not productive and other people, they're productive. And the way you put it is motion versus action. So how does this tie in though with, you know, you're saying, you know, some people would perceive the two minute rule, not as a vote for, you know, uh, you know, a, a being a new person, changing their identity, uh, adding another atom to their being of who they want to be. They would see it as, that's just me doing, going through emotion, not necessarily taking action. But I think what you're saying is, some amount of motion is required in order to be pushed into consistent action. Is that what I hear hmm. you saying? Yeah, that's a good question. So just to get everybody on the same page. Uh, so motion versus action, the way that I define it in the book is that motion are encapsulates the behaviors that you do that will never get you the result that you're looking for, but are like related to the result. So for example, it doesn't matter how many times you go to the gym and talk to a personal trainer, talking to a personal trainer will never get you in shape. It's just motion. Whereas going to the gym and doing 10 squats is action because that can actually lead to the desired result that you want to have. So the, the distinction there is that, and I mentioned this in the book as well, it's not that motion is totally useless. Sometimes getting a personal trainer might be a good idea. Um, or, Another example would be, uh, you know, researching potential clients or potential leads uh, for your business. Doesn't matter how much you research potential leads, that will never generate a sale. But making sales calls to those leads will. So you, one researching is motion, making sales calls is action. But in many cases, you need to spend some time researching uh, leads so that you can make sales calls. And the key distinction here is that Planning is useful until it becomes a form of procrastination. Uh, when motion becomes a form of procrastination, when it becomes something that is preventing you from spending that next minute on action, uh, then it's no longer useful. And ultimately, you you need a good portion of action to get the result. And so I think that the the reason I bring up that distinction in the book and the reason I think it's important to talk about is that for whatever reason – we seem to be wired to, it, it feels like we're making progress. This is why motion is like desirable, you know, researching potential leads for your business or dreaming up business names or possible logos that it feels like you're making progress. You're like, yeah, I'm moving forward. Like I'm working on this side business that I've had an idea for, but ultimately you can just do that day in and day out and not feel like you're failing. There's very little risk of failure with motion. And I think that's why we uh, gravitate toward it. Whereas action, you're running a risk. Like there's a potential to fail. There's a potential you won't be able to do those 10 squats with that weight. Or there's a potential the sales call will go poorly and they'll say no. Um, but usually getting a result requires so you to take on some level of risk. And so I, I make that distinction just to try to nudge people toward the more action-oriented part of the spectrum. Gotcha. Yeah. So and, and, and I can see how, you know, again, it can be addictive to stay in motion without action, because like with, quote, bad habits, it's fulfilling a need to a certain extent. It's it satiates us in the immediate time, but not in the long term. Mm, that's a good distinction as well. I would say motion almost always serves you in the short run, but not in the long run, whereas action may run a risk in the short run, but serves you in the long run. Yeah. So it's almost like, oh gosh, it's almost like when you see a commercial for something and you immediately think, ooh, I need to get that because it's going to make me feel good now. Whereas it, 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 that's just a perception. It's not the actual uh, value of whatever that product is you're seeing. 
So that actually what you just described, I think, is another important reason why I wanted to add that second stage of craving to the the four stage habit loop, which is many of your actions are not driven by what they actually give you. So, for example, when you watch a commercial or say you look at a product on Amazon, if you look at a, a book on Amazon or watch a commercial for an ad and you decide to buy that product, you are not. So the cue is you see the ad comes on the prediction or the craving is, you know, this book will be really useful. I should buy it. Then the response is I click purchase and buy. You don't actually buy the book. What you buy is the image that the sales page creates in your mind, or you buy the image that the commercial creates in your mind. And that image, that prediction or craving is what motivates you to act. And um, so in that sense, I think the loop provides a little more clarity around what it is that actually gets people moving. Uh, It's not the reward uh, that the product has. It's the perceived value. Now, the reward is really useful for getting people to repeat a particular action. And so this is why I like the phrase perceived value motivates you to to act. Um, Perceived value motivates you to act. Actual value motivates you to repeat. So it needs to be rewarding if you want to do it again. But uh, your perception needs to be great the first time for you to act at all. And it's maybe that actual value, that experiencing that actual value after accumulating enough of those votes or atoms that then maybe flips the switch in your brain that I am a person who meditates or, you know, fill in the blank. I think that's right. And this is, uh, you know, so I talk about this with uh, in the book about like making your habit satisfying. You want the reward of the ending of your habit to be satisfying because that's kind of like this positive emotional signal that says, hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time. And when you're waiting for those long term rewards to show up, you know, like you've meditated four days in a row, but you still don't feel this sense of calm or Zen or peace or you've gone to the gym for three weeks, but you still don't see any change in your body. Um, this is because people are waiting for those delayed rewards. It's hard to feel satisfied in the moment. And that's one reason why using external reinforcers for, um, for habits can be useful because they kind of help you get through this like valley of death, uh, in the beginning while you're waiting for those delayed rewards to accumulate. But then once those come through, whether it's a month or six months or a year from now, then it becomes much easier uh, to stick with it. And it becomes much easier to adopt that identity or to believe it in a deeper sense because you've got the, you have the proof of it now. Um, And so in a lot of ways, external reinforcers or secondary rewards are useful for kind of getting you through that, uh, that little dip in the beginning. Well, let's talk about that. The, the four step process for, reinforcing that the healthy habits and then you know obviously the opposite for uh getting rid of the quote bad habits uh, because i know that's one of the things that people are like well okay if i've chosen stuff if i you know if i know who i want to be then you know and i know who i want to be long term but short terms where it quote is hard how do i get over that difficulty up front yeah that's a good question so One of the key things that I wanted when I wrote Atomic Habits is I wanted it to be practical. I wanted it to be an actionable framework that people could use uh, in daily life and work for building good habits and breaking bad ones. And to do that, first, we had to develop a clear understanding of what a habit is and how it works and what's the best way to look at it. And we've just talked through all of those different things. Um, But once you have that four-step framework of cue, craving, response, and reward – now, how do we translate that into something useful? And this is what I call the four laws of behavior change. And so for each stage, we've got a law of behavior change. And so if you want to create a good habit, the first law is to make it obvious. So you want to make the cues of your good habits obvious and available and visible. The second stage is craving, and you want to make it attractive. The more attractive a habit is, the more likely you'll feel motivated to do it. The third stage is to make it easy. Uh, so the third law of behavior change, make it easy. You want to make the response itself as convenient as possible. We've already talked about one example with that, with the two-minute rule. And then the fourth and final stage is you want to make it satisfying. The more satisfying a reward is, the more satisfying a behavior is, the more likely you are to repeat it in the in the future. So those four laws, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying, describe how to build a good habit. And there are many, many examples of how to apply those four laws in the book. And then if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert those. So 
rather than make it obvious, you want to make the cues of your bad habits invisible. So the inversion of the first law is make it invisible and then make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And uh, by having those kind of two sets of laws, you've got uh, a toolkit or a, a framework for thinking about how to build a good habit and how to break a bad one. And then, of course, there are many applications of that that I go over, like how to actually, you know, implement, make it difficult or make it obvious in daily life. So before getting to that point, though, some people are going to say, OK, well, I know who I want to be, but then how do I drill down <laughs> maybe to that atomic level and say, OK, I've identified exactly what it is that I now need to, whether it's I want to create a good habit and I already have a bad habit in place. Do I go about it by eliminating the negative or do I go about it by building a positive in its place? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I um, I The answer is you can do whichever one you want. Uh, but my recommendation is usually to start by building good habits rather than starting by breaking bad ones. And the reason is often building a good habit, kind of like a plant crowds out another one uh, good habits can crowd out the bad ones naturally. So for example, let's say that you have a bad habit of watching too much Netflix or YouTube or procrastinating with online videos and things like that. Well, if you do that each night and you spend like two or three hours watching a screen then uh, you may think, oh, I really need to kick this bad habit. But then you also have a good habit that you want to build, which is like you want to go to the gym and work out, you know, three or four nights a week. Well, if you just build the good habit of going to the gym and you scale it down to just the two minute rule of like, let me get my shoes on and get my gym bag and get out the door and drive. Um, or in my case, I find that if I just change into my workout clothes, if, if that happens, everything else will happen automatically. If I change into my workout clothes, I'll get in the car, I'll go to the gym. It'll all be like the next two hours are almost decided just by those two minutes. So the, my point there is if you figure that piece out and you say, all right, I'm going to come home from work, I'll change into my workout clothes and go to the gym. Um, and you build that little habit of changing into your workout clothes, then all of a sudden that frees up the next two hours. And you, because you're at the gym, uh, or driving to and from or whatever, you can't watch the screen. You, you can't watch these YouTube videos. So it's kind of like by just by focusing on building that good habit, you naturally got back some of that screen time and ate that, uh, ate that time up with something more productive. So, uh, my recommendation is usually to start by building a good one rather than breaking a bad one, but either one is effective. And, um, of course it'll depend on your particular situation. Yeah. Well, and the other part, that as I'm listening to that, I'm thinking, okay, so you've made the Netflix, the, the queue of Netflix. Oh gosh, Netflix queue. Get it? Anyway, you've made the, <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't believe I did that. Uh, you've made the queue for Netflix, the, the quote bad thing. You've made it invisible. So it's not going to affect you as much. But then the other thing that you're doing is, you're approaching it from the perspective of the why behind you were doing it. In other words, the craving. You're, you're addressing the craving and you're not saying, you're not beating yourself up and saying, man, I hate that I was so stupid to sit down and waste so many hours watching Netflix, blah, 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 as we get caught up into a, a cycle of, you know, shaming ourselves. And instead, there was a reason that Netflix felt good and fulfilled a, a need, a craving. So, in to go back it to go back at it from the problem solving perspective of what a habit's actually trying to do you're switching up you're saying that was not the solution to the problem i'm now doing a different solution to that problem yeah i think that uh that is not the only way to break a bad habit but it can be an effective way which is essentially inserting a new routine uh around the same queue or context or time or so on and um that's sort of similar to what you're describing there yeah yeah you know, some people are going to need to, they'll feel better cutting out the bad stuff. And that's their perspective. And others, they're going to have to approach it from, I'm coming at it from, I'm going to replace with good. And I mean, do you have any perspective on that? Does one work better for you? Or do you have any kind of advice there? Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, it, it's possible that it's person specific, but I think actually it's probably even more habit specific. Um, in some cases, uh, the habit that you're looking to cut out, it has this like big ripple effect into other areas of life. Like, let's say, for example, that you're uh, the bad habit that you want to cut out is eating too many sweets and, you know, um, or having too much sugar or something like that. 
Well, it's possible that if you cut that out, then you start eating a little bit more greens or whatever. And then that leads to sustained energy. And because your energy is higher, you feel like you can actually work on that side project for your business or meditate or have the, you know, the mental energy required to get changed and go to the gym or whatever. And so in that case, like cutting out a bad habit actually influences a lot of other habits. And that's almost always true. Behaviors come in like bundles. They're kind of related to each other. And so you'll see people do that all the time. You know, they'll like, um, they may pay off some debt and then all of a sudden they go to the gym and they like that the momentum from that thing, uh, leads into other areas or they, uh, go for a daily walk and that daily walk habit leads to them feeling more creative and productive. And now all of a sudden they're writing consistently. And then because they're writing consistently, they're meeting new people who are reading their blog online and stuff like that. So it's, you know, just, um, it can ripple, but, uh, for me, I, I do tend to focus on building good ones rather than breaking bad ones and like crowding those out. Um, but I do that not just because I, maybe that's like what my natural inclination is, but also I know that if I get a couple of these core habits, like some of the ones that are really important to me are uh, lifting weights four or five days a week and writing. Um, and I know that if I do those two, man, they just they both pull a lot of the rest of my life in line. So um, I just focus on that. And then that way I have like, it's a little simpler, you know, I have a few, a few levers to pull and it really helps everything else. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, that's a case where motion in one area or action in one area then spreads over to having motion and then action in other areas as well. James, this has been awesome we haven't even gotten into a bunch of other stuff that would be awesome to talk about, but Luckily, you wrote a book about it. I would love to have you shoot anybody over to uh, wherever you would like. That is the best place for them to get more acquainted with what you've written on this and especially the book. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Uh, so the, the book is called Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And you can get it at AtomicHabits.com. And also on that page, there are a couple of uh, free downloads and like bonus guides. So there's a guide on how to apply the ideas to business. There's a guide on how to apply the ideas to parenting. Um, there's a habit tracker where you, a template that you can use to track your habits and a couple other things as well. But anyway, all of that is available at atomichabits.com. Very cool. All right. I will link that up in the show notes. James, it's been awesome talking with you. I'd love to do it again. This is your first book. So I'm assuming great future books will come along. Open invitation to come back and talk. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with James Clear. I'm personally going through this book again right now because this is the perfect time to do that. Reassessing what it is I'm really wanting to do or who I'm really wanting to be and which habits I've fallen into the rut with in terms of alleviating pain in the wrong ways. So I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you're taking something away from it. I hope that you go grab the book. It's probably one of the five go-to productivity book suggestions I make to people. If you benefited from listening in on this conversation, I'd love for you to do me the favor of sharing it by hitting the share button in whatever podcast player app of choice you're using right now and or leaving a review or rating wherever you choose to do that. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next episode.